Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast, helping moms to love wisely and well. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Wild, integrative pediatrician and mom of eight sons who continually challenge and teach me. Over the years, I've learned that rather than outward technique, it's the internal landscape of the heart that affects parenting more than anything else. Mothering is about being, not just doing. You have everything you need within you to become the parent you want to be. So let's bring it out. Welcome to the Compassion Parenting Podcast. Today we have the privilege of speaking with Ned Johnson. He is an author, a speaker, and the founder of Prep Matters, which is an educational company focused on academic tutoring, educational planning, and standardized test preparation. The way I encountered Ned Johnson is that he happens to be the co-author of one of my favorite books about um, supporting kids in excellence, and that is The Self-Driven Child. Thank you so much, Ned, for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd just like to jump right in and ask you, you know, what is your take on this emerging category of teenagers and young adults who are under chronic stress due to all the pressure to perform? It's an area of concern. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, you may know, and your readers, your listeners may know, uh, there's a big study done by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, three or four years ago, pre-COVID, about the sources of, of anxiety, of stress in, in American adolescents. And the first four were poverty, trauma, discrimination, followed closely thereafter by ex intensive pressure, excessive pressure to excel. Mm -hmm. And it's a concern, right? And, and, and part of the challenge is with that, that pressure to excel is, is we know in psychology that an internal locus of control is so vital in the sense of control, you know, to healthy motivation and to stress tolerance. And as, as soon as things are externalized, if, if I'm leaning on my kid or my teachers or whatever, whatever, it's really, it's, it's, it's a rough thing to be, have young developing brains being constantly bathed in a stew of toxic stress and cortisol and other neurotransmitters, because the most from, I mean, <laughs> as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm, I run a company that helps people prepare for and get into college. Yes. And even I would say that the most in Bill and, you know, he's a neuroscientist that the most important outcome of high school and adolescence is not where you get to go, go to college, but the brain that you develop and carry into college and into, into adulthood. So, mm -hmm. um, it's a it's a real concern and of course you know all of your listeners are interested in how do i help my kids be successful which of course we all want but how do we do this in a way that's that's healthy um and so support and pressure are not the same thing yes i think that's a really important distinction to make and and it's so interesting because cortisol is cortisol no matter what the source <laughs> you know this this stress hormone um and and so though we might be trying to give our child every opportunity and every um, possibility for success and, and and we think we're doing them a service um, when there's that extensive pressure then it starts being damaging so i think it's mm -hmm. important to to really find that balance um so as somebody who helps clients you know day by day 
day after day mm -hmm. um, in the idea of preparation. Preparation is something that helps us have more of an internal mm -hmm. locus of control. Um, but yet, sometimes there can be an overemphasis on, you know, being in control. Um, so where do we find this balance between, you know, compassionately helping our kids really be prepared, but yet helping them really have this orientation of kind of playful curiosity as they look forward to their future? Wow, there are a lot of a lot of really good points in there. I mean, one of the things with the sense of control is that is that is, is a healthy sense of control doesn't mean you're in charge of everything, right? That you mm -hmm. run everything. We certainly don't let four year olds run run the show, nor do we want it. You know, nor do we want you know teenagers in high school to feel like if if only they do everything right, then they'll get into an Ivy League school, because feeling like you're responsible or need to control things where actually don't have control is really crazy making. Mm -hmm. The person whose research we, we lean on a lot is a guy named Steve Mayer, uh, who he, he and, and Martin Seligman did all this early work uh, on what's known as learned helplessness. And they had this big paradigm paper called Learned Helplessness at 50, kind of what we got right and what we got wrong. Mm -hmm. And he said, the thing that we got wrong was this. So in, in these studies, they, they'd had you know, various animals and they, they'd put them in a cage and they'd shock them, they'd do this repeatedly and habituate them to the shock to the point that the light could go off, the shock is coming, they could open the cage and the animals would just sit there and thought, oh my gosh, this is a terrible thing. The point that Mayer, Dr. Mayer made was, it wasn't that these animals learned to be helpless, it was that they failed to learn a sense of control. Mm. So this, this kind of paradigm study that he does, he has rat A and rat B in a, in a cage, their tails are out the back, um, you get shocked. It's not life-threatening, it, it's not terribly painful, it's just kind of annoying. And so rat A has this little wheel that he can spin and it stops or attenuates the shock. Rat B, um, his wheel doesn't do a darn thing. Um, but whatever red A experiences in terms of the shock is what red B gets. So they're having the same amount of, of shock and, and you know, um, cortisol stress coming through them, but red A has a sense of control. So he's enduring this, but he can do something. And when he spins this wheel and realizes it makes a difference, you get this massive activation, the left frontal lobe of the prefrontal cortex, actually the medial frontal cortex, excuse me. And it dampens down the stress response. And this at a neurological level is what coping looks like. So when we talk about our kids in difficult situations, and you know, you as a clinician knowing that we don't want to shield our kids from anything that could possibly be distressing because you don't learn to tolerate stress except by tolerating stress, right? Right. So we want to support kids. And, and, and allow them to, even when things are hard, do things that, that they can, you know, that they, they, they can feel that sense of control and handle things. <clears throat> sort of back to your larger question about how do we, how do we help them be prepared and also playful curiosity. <clears throat> One of the interesting things that the mayor, after these, this rat A had had this experience, he ends up being, um, he ends up being stress tolerant. They can put him in new situations. He talks about this, the stress tolerance is trans-situational. So the loud music, a big scary rat, a, a big open room with bright lights. He, he doesn't, he doesn't freak out. He, he jumps into company mode and he's curious. So, you know, rats, because they're prey animals tend to want to stay in the corners. So they put the food and the wheel and all this kind of stuff out in the center and say, does the rat make a foray out there? Well, rat B stays in the corner and cowers and just hides. And rat A has this curiosity to go out and explore things because taking on new situations, doing things you've never done before, even when it's unpredictable, it takes courage to be curious. And so honestly, 
the more we can help kids have stress tolerance, the more they know I can try this thing. And if I come up short, I can cope with that. So it's really, it's really a big deal. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about that, it just reminded me of the fact that um, I think it's important to acknowledge upfront that stress is not always bad. Like stress leads us to be motivated. It leads us to, um, you know, have um, to preserve our own survival by keeping ourselves safe in important ways. And really, the research shows that as um, we um, interpret the stress, that is part of how it affects us. So people who are under stress that they are choosing, that they see a purpose to, that they um, value and see as positive, it actually doesn't have the same negative health effects as that stress that is imposed. And so I think that's a really important distinction to make and something to help us as parents think about as we're thinking, how much are we you know, um, coercing our kids into these activities versus how much are we letting them act out of a sense of passion and motivation? It's an excellent point. I mean, one, one kind of metaphor that jumps to mind for me is if, if I were on a treadmill, Right. And I'm a runner. I like to run, you know, and, and but if I can sit there and I have my control, I've controlled the speed, right? I can push myself and get it faster and faster and faster. And for a minute or two, run at a pace that is like way beyond what I normally do. And we push ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it, because the, the, to the point that you made, we naturally experience stress when we're at the edges of our ability. And this mm-hmm. is where we grow and thrive. But if you put me back on that treadmill and you are in charge of the speed on there and it starts getting faster and faster and I'm getting more and breathless, I am going to start to panic because mm-hmm. I don't know, can I get off this thing? Can I turn it down? And so we know that as individuals and for children, that kids will push themselves more when they know that they can say that's enough for now, mm-hmm. where if they feel like they're, if someone else is pushing them, all their their energy changes entirely. It's not a sense of excitement of, let me see how much I can do. It's a sense of, oh my goodness, where, where, where do I want to be? To your other point about excitement, there's this one, as you probably know, this wonderful curve called the Yerkes-Dodson law. And if people can just picture an upside down you, a bell curve, right? When there's zero physiological arousal, zero cortisol, the performance is pretty much zero as well. But, you know, when you play against a team who's, they can't even catch the ball, right? Your team's going to win, but you're not going to play your best because you don't have to. Mm-hmm. But we should feel butterflies before a big game, before we talk to someone who thinks cute, before we take a quiz or whatever, whatever. And when we can experience that as excitement, which often is tied to, I can control this, right? Excitement, we get that optimal arousal. And so, yeah, our brains are filled with the stress hormones, but if we get a, we fold in more dopamine and norepinephrine and, 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 and it's a very different experience. It feels intense, but exciting as opposed to intense and oh my goodness. And then the last thing about this is when kids can control it, I can push myself, right? Like back to the treadmill metaphor, and that could be anything, right? In a healthy stress response, we have the ability to push ourselves to high level and, re- and react to that stressor. But then in a healthy stress response, we come back to baseline relatively quickly. So we, it's kind of like doing an intense workout and then recover, intense workout and then recover. Where to the first question you asked about this chronic stress, if you're constantly under pressure, you can't afford to push yourself to higher level because you have no sense that you can go, that you can recover and go back to a low level of stress. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when kids look like they're doing nothing, 
they may just be recovering. And we as parents say, shouldn't you be doing something? I'm like, oh, please, (laughs) (laughs) please don't do that. Yes. Um, And when we're talking about the brain, it reminds me of how, you know, the amygdala is often pinpointed as the part of the brain that is kind of the source of the activation of the sympathetic nervous system, you know, the stress response, but it's also described as the part of the brain that senses significance. And, you know, I certainly want my kids to understand when something is important. And when we have that um, understanding that something like, okay, here, here we go, this is something that's important, then we can really put our, our optimal focus at work. And it's interesting, I think it's kind of ironic, we're talking about rats on tread, treadmills and people on treadmills, because sometimes that is the metaphor we use for feeling like we're on this thing, this machine that we can't get off of. Um, it's, it's so true. You know, in our, in our second book, What Do You Say, which is talking with kids to build motivation, stress tolerance in a happy home, we look at the work of Lori Santos. You know, Lori Santos, who is the happiness class, uh, of course, at, at, at um, Yale. And I was just doing some, you know, Google, Google, you know, research on her. And she's a, a professor of psychology. And some of her early work was actually on put this is fantastic taking treadmills taking wheels out into nature where there are rats Hmm. and rats love to run they would come Hmm. away from whatever hunting for whatever they're hunting for right seeds or whatever and they go (laughs) oh and they go on that and they love to run they love to run right it's hilarious that's really interesting but i i i really value your emphasis on, you know, helping kids feel like they have some sense of control. Um, I I specifically remember a young adult client that I worked with who, you know, I was trying to describe to him like these foundational healthy practices. Mm. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're telling me that I'm supposed to be, you know, sleeping. I'm supposed to be eating well. I'm supposed to be you know, X, Y, Z. And at the same time, other people are telling me, and you have to reach this certain level of performance and you have to, you know, get these grades and you have to do service in the community. And he's like, it just is a math equation that doesn't add up. It's, it's like an impossibility. And so he was just feeling crushed by all these expectations. Right, And, And when it feels like it's on the outside of you kind of, um pushing in versus right. well these are all these possibilities and mm-hmm. let's go you know it's it's interesting you know most mental health is changing thinking from i have to which is crazy making and fear driven and amygdala and cortisol data to i want to yes right? you know if i want to go on a treadmill is very different than you know to your the treadmills were initially used in what like middle ages england as a form of punishment right <laughs> that they would they would you can google these pictures it looks literally like a wheel almost like a you know like a a, a mill wheel and they'd have these people and like ladies in long victorian gowns sitting there on this treadmill and walking for hours a day to power the mill Mm-hmm. And it was considered, you know, you know, a form of punishment because of the utter pointlessness and monotony of doing this. Mm-hmm. But there are sometimes when we we love doing this, and so 
you know, back to the back to this 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 boy you're talking about, when he feels like he has to, has to, has to, has to. I mean, there's huge power when you change your thinking from I've got to 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 I get to I get to, right? Yes. And and you know, we talk in in the self-driven child, um, sort of two things. One, there's a chapter at the end of the book called Alternate Roots. Too many of us easily fall into a scarcity mindset that there are only so many spots that will lead to successful lives that if you're not mm-hmm. if you're not top 10% of your high school class you know good luck having a successful life well that makes you know 90% of people kind of think either they're terrified or think why even bother why even bother trying mm-hmm. and of course all of us know people who are as a friend of mine said who weren't precocious but they were postcocious right <laughs> You know, they didn't hit their stride until they were whatever point in life. And so we talk about all these different stories and it's really powerful stuff. Um, Bruce Feiler talks about this, that that for for us as adults to talk with our kids about our up and downs, right? About our parents and our grandparents up and downs. You know, they this business failed, but they came came back. Um, in part because children can so often look at high-performing parents as like they're parthenogenic, like it's Athena popping fully formed from Zeus's brow, as though we were never, you know, adults in 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 a process of becoming, right? Yes. And the second thing to this idea of of kind of being up and down, Sonia Lupian, who's this great researcher at, at Montreal and studies the Center for Studies of Human Stress, observes that one of the single best things to lower people's stress is to have a plan B. Mm. And so when we can in, in, engage in plan B thinking, you know, Princeton, of course you should want to go to Princeton. You look fabulous in orange. I understand they have some good classes there too, you know, blah, 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 <laughs> right? And there's absolutely nothing wrong with really, really, really wanting to, to go to Princeton and work hard to do that. But when you feel that you have to, this is when really bad things happen. Everything from kids taking ethical shortcuts to sacrificing their mental health, their physical health, their integrity, you know, to the nth degree, you know, that was that book, What Made Maddie Run, where we're a high achieving supersonic kid and just ran off the top of a, you know, of a parking garage, right? Wow. And it's, it, it's not that, that intense pressure is the only thing that, that causes mental health and leads to bad outcomes, but it sure doesn't help, right? Right. Um, and so for all of these kids who grew up thinking that my entire destiny is being determined by these middle, but, you know, by the time I'm 16 or 17, it's, it's, it's just, it's not factually true. Mm-hmm. And it is so injurious to kids and how they perceive the world and fundamentally to our relationship with, as parents with our, with our kids, right? Mm-hmm. Do you really want to be telling your kid all the time, all the time, you're not measuring up and be very, very afraid? Yes, that's a terrible I don't. message. I don't. <laughs> right. And I think so. I totally agree with you that so much of um, pathology in terms of like our mental health comes from this feeling of being stuck and feeling like mm-hmm. like we don't have options. And so sometimes, you know, that is I, I consider it my work is to help people see that they're not stuck and right. you have options. And I, and I think that that's a beautiful point you make. Um, I know in the book, The Self-Driven Child, you talk about these myths that are propagated, including the one you mentioned that, you know, there's only this one narrow road to success. And, and another one I think is just that the answer is always to push harder, push harder. So could right. you speak a little bit about these myths and how we can untangle ourselves and our kids from them? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to begin with, I mean, to, to be fair, oftentimes the ways that we as parents push our kids, it, it, it's born out of love. I mean, you know, who doesn't want their kid to have everything for the world, it's the sun and the moon, the world to be the oyster. You want everything for your kid. And that makes all the sense in the world. And we're not talking about, you know, having lower expectations for your kids in part because there's a, in our, in our second book, what do you say? We, we, we talked to this, that what do we call it? The tale of two sweatshirts. And we talk about this, uh, um, Ron Suskind wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called Hope in the Unseen about this young, this family from Baltimore, African-American, very under-resourced, single mom, if I remember correctly. And she bought a Harvard sweatshirt for her, her little black boy, five years old, mm-hmm. with the, uh, to, to give him the message that he wasn't getting anywhere else in his life or his community yet. You too, you too are Harvard material. You too, and you're going to hear all these messages from the world outside of you that you aren't capable, you don't belong. So, and 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 she got in the sweatshirt because we know that parental expert expectations are hugely correlated to success, especially academic success. Mm-hmm. The other tale of the sweatshirt, we are somewhere out in, um, I think it's outside of Seattle, very very um, affluent independent school there, and <laughs> they had there were the we we're seeing these kids who are like kindergarten and first grade all running around with Yale sweatshirts, Stanford sweatshirts, Harvard sweatshirts, because all these super successful parents with this lovely, lovely, but very Tony school. (laughs) And the school school counselor is shaking her head, she said, because most of these kids aren't going to end up there. I mean, you know, first of all, there's just regression to the mean and things get more and more competitive and, 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 and it's just, it's a terrible message to send to kids that they have to achieve, you know, at this level. But it's the, again, the idea that you can achieve at this level, not that you have to achieve at this level, right? Is, is really where, is really where we want to be with this. Um, you know, this, this idea of, um, just this, this idea that we have narrow paths, right? And that we have to push, 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 because when we talk about taking a half step back and saying, look, you know, we talk in our book, you know, it, look, it's your call if you want to do this or not. And I support you. Let's make an informed decision and know that sometimes your kid might give up soccer and therefore probably not get a soccer scholarship, right? Where we, we, we because our fears as parents are, when we think about it, they're really all about the future. And so if our kid is struggling in second grade or quits the soccer team, you know, this, this, this movie that we have in our heads, it gets turned off. And, and we kind of mourn this, this this lost future that we imagined for our kids. But, you know, we actually wrote a piece called The Quitter's Ditch. <laughs> and it was about all these parents. My kid tries this and quits this and tries this and quits this. And part of it is we don't, you know, we, we, you know, what's, you know, one door closes and another door opens, right? You, it's really hard to know if it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, right? You know, what path will take there? You know, I started college. My, uh, I started college and I've been really good high school student, but there was a, I have a complicated family background. I may talk about that later. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of wobbly and I wanted to withdraw from the year. And my, my mom wouldn't let me. So I kind of, you know, meandered my way through. And then I started sophomore year and the same, same challenges, um, mostly probably in hindsight, sleep deprivation. We can talk about that in a moment. <laughs> yes. And so I, I took a year off and I worked at this restaurant and blah, blah, blah. And I sort of got my, you know, legs underneath me a little bit. Um, and I ended up, there are two things that have happened. I did, um, one, I started dating my 
let's see, my junior year, which would have been my senior, started joining the most wonderful person in the world, mm -hmm. who is my wife with whom I've now, we just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary. Wonderful. I was a junior when she was a freshman. If I'd been a senior, that would have been like socially sketchy. <laughs> <laughs> and this incredible life that I have, I don't know that this, I don't know this is what I've been. She's the one who turned me on to tune. She's the one who got me academic. I mean, I just, you know, these beautiful children have blah, blah, blah. And the other thing is, is, I have a twin brother um, who is also having some struggles. And I was there, I should have been graduated, but I was there when my brother made a very, very serious suicide attempt. Mm. And I was there and saved his life. I mean, obviously mm. the paramedics showed up there afterwards, whatever, but, it, but long, it, some basic emergency medicine stuff. And it's like, Hard to say, would it have been better if I'd hit the ground and been academically and thrived my freshman year, you mm -hmm. know, and missed this love of my life and listened to my brother. And the major that I, I've always thought about this too, the major, the thing that I studied was economics. And most people from the college that I attended went off and worked on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And I swear, when I sat there watching the towers come down on 9-11, I thought, I might've been there if I hadn't taken this path into education. So you just don't. No, right? right and right. you know bill has a bill my writing partner is a clinical neuropsychologist and, and what i should share with your listeners i mean i mostly work with super motivated often kind sort of oftentimes sort of peel people off the wall type mentalities right yes. bill, bill bill i'm good at peeling bill is a neuropsychologist works with kids where things are harder mm. learning is hard the attention is hard emotional regulation is hard 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 right and he, and, but he, he makes one that says, one of the coolest things about having kids, teenagers especially, is watching them do the hard work of trying to figure out who it is that they want to be, right? Mm -hmm. And we think that we can figure that out for our kids, and we can't. And it, even if we could, it would be a terrible idea because they need to have that. And so the last point about when we take pressure off and, and downtime, mm -hmm. there's this wonderful part of the brain, or it's actually a network, excuse me, called the default mode network. Mm -hmm. And for people who don't know this, it uses about 70% of the brain's energy. And they kind of stumbled on this with when they're first using functional MRIs. And it's like, okay, you know, Ned, Ned, sing a song, Mary, do math, whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you see kind of this blood flow and what part of the brain was being engaged. And it was kind of based on the assumption that if you aren't actively doing anything, that your brain ain't doing nothing. And that turned out to be wildly untrue. <laughs> and so when when they would, you know, in between tasks and you would just start daydreaming, they'd see this, like, what the heck is that? And so the default mode network engages when we're not actively doing anything. And it's really profound. Actually, Mary Helen Emmerdina Yang, it's a long name, whose who's, who big study for NIMH or NIH was rest is not idleness. Mm. And she talks about when the, de when the default mode network engages, we reflect on our past, we reflect on our future, we put things into context, we develop a sense of empathy, and most importantly, a coherent sense of identity. And the idea of teenagers, you know, particularly if I'm an old guy here, you know, sitting there listening to the, the, the cure and like kind of cogitating on the world and how it's not fair, whatever, and trying to figure all this stuff out. You don't figure out who you are and who you want to be unless you spend time thinking about who you are and who you want to be. Mm -hmm. And you don't do that when you're studying, you know, 27,000 hours. You just, you need time when you're, it looks like you're not doing anything and you get the chance to, to, to have that reflection. And so, I mean, what's more important than exiting high school with a clearer sense of who you are and what you want to be in the world? Right. So, so healing, so healing to have this downtime that sometimes we as parents have a hard time just 
allowing for our kids. <sighs> and then, and it's so funny that um, sometimes it's our anxiety to just like keep going, keep, you know, keep being mm-hmm. productive because it, we feel like it kind of reflects on us, you know, and when our kids quit. We try to like mm-hmm. create all these meanings, but I love how you acknowledge that who knows who knows right it's better or worse and it's just kind of like this the divine orchestration or you know the orchestration of the universe that is it's happening beyond us and that's a beautiful thing to recognize that um that we can't always know and and Mm -hmm. sort of rest in that lack of knowing Um, and and the other thing is even if even if there were you know this was the plan right even if people don't believe in this this kind of more spiritual view on it we can also hold to the thought back to the plan B thinking the children, despite, you know, appearances to the contrary, kids want their lives to work out. Yeah. It's, it's the only life that they have. So maybe I should have been a runaway success in a venture bank or whatever, whatever, whatever. And I didn't do that because I was struggling with mental health stuff my first year of college. And maybe, maybe that, maybe I missed that, but you know what? I bounce back and I, I want, I want the life that I want, right? <laughs> So I've worked really hard at this other thing, you know, and so, so, you know, particularly for kids where school is hard or they feel like they missed this or that opportunity, they can feel sorry. We can feel sad about that for a while, but then we, we really have to stand up, dust ourselves off and say, you know what, gosh, darn it. You know, you still have a life to build. How can I help you do that? Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Um, so let's talk a little bit about motivation. Mm. And I know that this is a topic you really have a lot of insight and passion about. How do we help kids develop that intrinsic motivation? And what about those kids that like are almost like overly motivated to an unhealthy degree? How do we how do we kind of tame them a bit? Yeah, let's do the first part first. So, so the dominant model of, of, of motivation for intrinsic motivation, which is again, I, I, not just that I'm working hard, but I want to work hard at yeah. this as opposed to carrots and sticks, right? Or, you know, threats and bribes is called self-determination theory. It's Edward DC and Richard Ryan. This is one of the most supported, most tested, most confirmed models in all of psychology, which is saying a lot. It's been kicking around for what, 40 plus years now. Mm-hmm. And it's really elegant and it holds that to be to feel intrinsically motivated to want to work hard at something we need we have three psychological needs that must be met one a sense of competency so feeling like I'm, I'm i'm good enough i can handle this right i don't look like a you know i don't look like a dope two a sense of relatedness or connection right and this is why great teachers coaches parents teacher whatever are worth their weight in gold because they don't get kids to work hard they make them feel like oh, i want to work hard at this i want to do really well mm-hmm. and the third is this sense of autonomy that you know that that I'll I'll work hard to get my parents off my back, but but or to get that A, but then as soon as I do, I'm done, right? Mm-hmm. Where when it's something I really care about, you work at it and you work at it and you work at it. You work my son. Um, so I'll, I'll add to that. Um, in the in in the corners of the world and the place that I work and the place where I visit it, it's almost always the case that parents over emphasize the competency. They push more practice, more practice, more practice to the degree that they undermine their relationships. So now they become the taskmaster or the boss rather than, gosh, I just love watching you play. It's so fun hearing you make music, whatever. And we undermine kids' autonomy. So they don't feel like they're in control. They feel like we're in control. 
And we t- so we look at some, uh, another researcher named Reed Larson who was studying in the 90s. How is it that, that teens and young adults become intrinsically motivated? And he found that it was not by dutifully doing their homework, it's by what he described as the passionate pursuit of pastimes. So mm. this can get sports and could be rock climbing, coding, small engine repair, music, art, theater, whatever, 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 whatever. And Bill tells a story in there about being a rock and roll guy. He said, I, he said, I grew up out of, outside of Seattle, Washington, Bill's 72. So back then to go to the University of Washington, you had to have a GPA at 2.5. So I was kind of an overachiever at a 2.8. So that I saw, <laughs> gosh, I, I never, I never handed in anything on time. I never read any book past, past, past page 50. I just, I had no intellectual interest. But I was this passionate rock and roll guy. And in, uh, so the Beatles were a big deal when I was a teenager. And he still plays in rock and roll bands. And he said, I, I'd say, I'll go upstairs. I have this little room. I said, I go upstairs and I'll, I'll, I'll spend 30 minutes. I'll figure out this one guitar. Like, and then I'll go down and do my homework. And I come down two and a half, three hours later, gone. I had completely lost track of time, completely engaged in this flow experience, right? Yes. And he said, I'm absolutely convinced that I wired a brain that could go pedal to the metal by doing my rock and roll. And I, and I observed this in my own family because my son is a music major in college and just mm-hmm. incredibly talented. And he had a side project where he was asked to, compo- to compose a score for a film student at, at NYU Tisch. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, he may have spent 600 hours doing this unpaid, mind you, right? Wow. And just sitting and watching, you know, and sitting him glued in his chair for six hours straight working on like 60 seconds of music you're like you've you've got to be kidding me it's unbelievable and it's this flow experience where it's high effort high focus high engagement high intention high motivation Mm -hmm. low stress yeah so so when you know bill especially when he works with kids you know a lot of him for school it's not easy he said look I don't, as long as there's something that you're engaged in and you're working really harder and harder at to get better and better, I don't worry about you because mm-hmm. you're wiring that brain. And at some point, your interest may become more academic and da 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 da. You know, kids will put down, you know, childish things and, and pick up more adult things, but we wire our brains really through play, right? Peter Gray, and then they become these pastimes when they move into adolescence. So mm-hmm. those are kind of our, our dominant thoughts about motivation. Perfectionism on the surface looks great. Mm. And it's actually terrible. Yes. And so we really make a, a distinction between high expectations, which I want to have for myself and want you to have for you and your and the, the folks you work with, you know, and we want this for our kids, but that's not what perfectionism high expectations. Are, you know, I want this to be great when it doesn't go well, how can I make this better? And we lean into feedback. Perfectionism mm. is appearing perfect, never making mistakes. And so we hide mistakes. We don't embrace them as feedback. When people point them out, we get, you know, we get frosty with them, right? And over time, we don't push ourselves to do things at a higher and higher level. We do things that protect our ego and we actually don't push ourselves to a higher level. Mm-hmm. Now, because perfectionism is almost always fear-based, it oftentimes parents say, sweetheart, you don't have to be 100% of this. And, and they'll argue back, yes, I do. And as you know, as a clinician, it is hard to talk people out of that. Right. One angle that we take on this is simply to validate and say, I, I, I see that you feel like you have to be perfect as all the time because you know, so many of your classmates are. You know, and it makes sense to me that you think that, right? So you're validating that perspective. Mm-hmm. You can then, lean, from our perspective, you can lean in with something like, it must be hard to feel like you have to be perfect all the time. Hmm. And then wait, 
right? Because most kids, if they're there all the time, they don't like feeling like this all the time. Yeah. Or you can say something, you know, it, it may feel to you like you have to be perfect all the time, but you know, I kind of see it a little bit differently. And if you're if you're interested, you know, I'll share that with you. Or, you know, would you like to feel like it's safe to 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 be able to be, you know, A and and not have to be A plus all the time? You know, would you like some help with that? Because we're always trying to get buy-in because otherwise when we push up our perspective or push our advice on kids who don't want to hear it, one, we kind of close that door of communication and two kids will often then resist what's in their own best interest because it's what, you know, dopey dad told them they had to do. Right. And, right. and they don't want, they don't want to walk back in that, in that direction. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about it in our, in our second book, what do you say that, that, that kids who are sort of stuck anywhere, including stuck in perfectionism are, and they're always ambivalent. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't want to be doing 14,000 hours, you know, 10 hours on a project when, when four would probably be good enough. They really don't, but they also fear not doing that. And so they're stuck. They want, they want to work less, but they feel like they have to work more. And so we want to, we want to approach this with a, with a, a level of energy that keeps the wall between where they are and where they'd like to be, where their perspective is and where our perspective is very low because it makes it easier for them to, to peer over the other side or to tiptoe onto, onto a, a more sane side of that wall. <laughs> I think that's so valuable. So valuable to think about that. Now let's conclude with just coming back to the basics. Um, I know in your book, you, you emphasize the importance of that the foundations of a healthy lifestyle, things like sleep mm -hmm. and um, healthy balance of technology use. And, you know, when you're talking about the default mode network, you know, that's another um, culprit that steals our kids time from being in that brain space. Mm. It's either if they're working so, so hard at something that is like this task mm -hmm. that robs them, but also if they're just kind of um, having somebody else kind of in their mind with this narrative or this entertainment mm -hmm. that also robs that that network. So true. So if you could talk a little bit about um, what you counsel your clients about having that healthy foundation. Mm -hmm. So it's a great point. I mean, you know, when, when we talk about a sense of control, we talk about this in, in two domains and two dimensions. One is this, this subjective sense of autonomy. And the second is the brain state that supports us, meaning that when, 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 are, when we are in our quote unquote right minds, the prefrontal cortex runs the show, including regulating the stress detecting amygdala, right? When things get out of balance and the amygdala goes crazy, then we're not thinking that well or being that, being that successful. Mm -hmm. So we spent a lot of time in the self-driven child talking about things that are conducive to the brain health that allows the prefrontal cortex to run the show. So as you mentioned, right, sleep is just incredibly important because when we're sleep deprived, the amygdala is like 60% more reactive. It floods us with cortisol. I mean, the effects on the, the effects of the, on the brain of sleep deprivation and of stress are almost interchangeable, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to develop anxiety, depression, all you really got to do is be too tired and too stressed for too long and you'll end up there. So sleep is incredibly important. Exercise, particularly where it's not like, you know, the, uh, a guy with a clipboard and a whistle where it's high engagement, but you're not being told what to do. Incredibly powerful for, you know, blowing off cortisol for, you know, endocannabinoids. That's my favorite thing. Yes, it sounds like cannabis. And that's exactly what you get from distance running, right? You know, all of these things that things that are good for the body are good for the brain because right. the brain is, is actually not a separate organ, right? 
So all of these things are really valuable. Technology may be the single biggest thing that's likely to end the human race, right? Early civilized societies, right? And so there's a lot to be said about that. Parents are understandably very concerned about this, as they should be. The challenge is how do we, from our perspective, we don't want it to be our goal to say, how do we control our kids' use of technology, but rather, how do we help our kids learn to develop the skills with our support to manage for themselves their use of technology? Mm -hmm. Because if we're command and control until they run off to college with hopes and dreams and a suitcase full of money, they're going to be back with hopes and dreams, maybe, and, and the money gone, right? And so it's it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. So we talk about this in both books. We actually have a pretty deep dive on this and what he's saying you know, about, about gaming and, and pornography and social media and, 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 and about how to talk with kids about this, mm -hmm. but it all really falls under the heading of, we talk about in, in, in the self-driven child about thinking about parents approaching their kids and really anything is as though they were consultants rather than the managers or the police. Now I would say with little kids, I mean, no kid, when I see a three-year-old with, with an iPad and a stroller, I just about want to lose my mind. Yeah. So we, we want to, with technology, delay, delay, and really tight, you know, titrate it out bit by bit, make the ground rules before you give them the device. And then, but then as kids get older, they should be able to use things more, take on more things. And you really want to use a collaborative problem solving approach, mm -hmm. right? Because kids are going to very quickly know as much about technology as, as, as we do, and then very quickly, not too far after more. But we see things that they're not thinking about yet. And so you just you really want to be a consultant with your kids. You want to take this collaborative problem solving approach um, with the long term goal of having your kids learn to regulate their use by themselves. There's a story in the in our second book about my kid who's who's ADHD. Um, it was a sophomore in high school. The game Fortnite came through like a biblical plague. And it was <laughs> He loved it. It was all compelling, but we're like, oh my goodness, right? And, and it kind of, but he was, I mean, he was playing, he was playing with friends who are the kids who otherwise would have been friends with, very social. But I'm thinking, trench, we're doing there's a cutting and doing homework, whatever. So he has this, he has this, he has a Friday off of school. So on Thursday night, I sort of casually asked him, so, so what do you do with your day off tomorrow? He smiles, he says, play Fortnite. And I say, uh, oh, okay, uh, great. Any, anything else? Mm, I'll think about it. <sighs> big sigh. So I get home like six o'clock on Friday and there's my kidney and having a whale of a good time. I admit to being a little like, really sick. And I started, I slide over and said, can you, can you, can you, you know, kind of finish, you know, when I really don't care for so the game doesn't take forever. I said, Oh yeah, yeah, sure. He's much more easy going than is his dad. And I said, and by the way, can you, can you get dressed? Cause he's sitting there. He's still in his pajamas. <laughs> And we had plans to go out for dinner. And so he gets, he wins or loses. I don't even remember. Uh, he gets dressed. We go and have pizza. It's, you know, it's great. I calm down. I cool off. And I say nothing more that night. And then Saturday, I say nothing more. And Sunday, I say nothing more until about five o'clock when that's, if you have a teenage boy, that's the witching hour when they realize, wait, tomorrow's the thing. Oh, and all the homework that he's, he's done is studiously avoided. Now it's facing him. And so he's, he's got his head in his head, like, I'm such a dope. I can't believe I did all of Friday. Why didn't I do something right? And if ever there's like this, you know, serve for a parental spike of I told you so right in his face. 
but you know, we're writing this book, so I didn't say that. Um, and so <laughs> I kind of put on my best consultant hat. I said, golly, I know how frustrating that is, is because it's very much something I would have done as a young person or maybe a 50 year old guy. And I said, can I ask a question though? He says, sure. I said, do you know roughly how many hours you spent playing? He's like, maybe eight or so wow was it fun oh yeah it was great we did this 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 yeah nice mm -hmm. i love that another question if you reflect on it how many hours do you think would have been necessary if they're less than than if you were than a to kind of get your fortnight fix in it's mm -hmm. like i don't know maybe 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 four or so i said nice i said one last question in the future would it be helpful if mom or I tried to kind of be your technology consultant to help you manage this so you can play and we're not like all over you, but you don't end up feeling like you, air quotes, wasted your whole day? Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, that, that'd be really good. Because I knew who this guy, I mean, when he was four, we could walk into 7-Eleven and there's Kino up there on the board. We could have like left him there for a week and as long as the clerk would feed him some food, we'd come back and he'd be right where he was, right? He's just <laughs> transfixed by them, right? And I knew this is the brain that he had, but I also knew that from my perspective, if we were to, no, 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 he wouldn't learn to struggle. And so it was this beautiful experience of him suffering the natural consequence of this frustration. I didn't have to say a darn thing yeah. and created this opportunity for us to be consultants. And so it's wonderful. So even now when he's, you know, second year student, just finished second year in college, he'll ask us about things that are, you know, because, and, and that's what we want, right? right? At the end of the day, we will have relationship with our children as adults way longer than we ever had with our children as children. Mm -hmm. And so rather than trying to craft an, a child relationship, we're trying to create an adult, eventually an adult relationship, whereby from my perspective, I hope to, for the rest of my life at least, have influence over him, mm -hmm. not have power over him. Yes, I love that. That is such a wonderful illustrative story. And I think we can all relate to that and how easy it is to step over that line to um, take on that kind of dictator role, but how it really doesn't get us where we want to be. And, and we really are parenting to that future child and that future relationship. And that actually is what feeds and nourishes the current relationship when we have that perspective. So. I think that that's just wonderful. So I know you have a resource that you are willing to share with our audience, um, uh, a summary of the book, The Self-Driven Child, along with some other really valuable resources. Can you tell us where the best place is to find you and what you have to offer as well as this gift? So those top 10 tips, we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. To find me, uh, I am on social. We have a website called self, the selfdrivenchild.com. Uh, I'm on social media, Twitter, at Ned Johnson. And I've sort of become a TikTok guy with uh, the other Ned Johnson is my TikTok handle. I made a kind of wackadoodle video about ADHD and procrastination. That Yerkes Dodson curve we were talking about a while ago that kind of went a little viral. So That's uh, awesome. if you're a TikTok, if you're a <laughs> <laughs> I may have the energy for TikTok, not not for the Atlantic, but uh, if uh, if if you're if you like TikTok, it's it's over there. I'm over there too. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. As it has been for me. Thanks for the work that you do. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Compassion Parenting Podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What resonated with you? What questions came up? Let's continue the conversation on Instagram at Compassion Parenting, or within my free Facebook group, Parenting Well, 
raising compassionate and productive humans. Links are in the show notes. If you've gained insight from the time we've shared today, leave a review and subscribe. There's a quick how-to in the show notes. Have a blessed week. May you love yourself, your family, and the world wisely and well.